0: My name is Tammy Duong. I'm a geriatric psychiatrist from University of California, San Francisco. And today I'm going to be reading a case from a book that I co-edited and co-authored with my colleagues, Rebecca Tomas and Peter Udeste. And the book is called Psychiatry Morning Report, Beyond the Pearls. And the case I'm going to be reading from today is about depression. It was written by Kimberly Shane, and she's from the University of Kentucky College of Medicine. So let's go ahead and get started on the case. A 16-year-old female presents to the emergency department with her parents after telling them earlier in the day that she didn't want to be alive anymore. The parents report that for the past six months, she's been feeling down and has been having thoughts of killing herself throughout the last week. She has a plan to kill herself that involves taking all of the medications in her family's medicine cabinet. The patient says that in the past six months, she also has experienced a decrease in energy saying that it feels like I'm never able to sleep. Her parents tell you she was previously on the track team at her school, but that she stopped going to practice two months ago because she didn't see the point anymore. Despite quitting the track team, the patient reports a weight loss of five pounds in the past six months because of a decrease in her appetite. She denies fevers, chills, dizziness, lightheadedness, headache, vision changes, chest pain, palpitations, shortness of breath, cough abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, dysuria, auditory hallucinations, and visual hallucinations. She has no past significant medical, surgical, or psychiatric history. So given the patient's presentation, what initial diagnoses would be important to consider in a differential? Well, based on the vignette discussed just now, this patient is experiencing a major depressive episode. A major depressive episode is defined as an episode that meets diagnostic criteria for major depressive disorder. We'll talk about that criteria here in a second. These symptoms have to be causing distress or impairment in functioning and is not due to a substance use or another medical condition. Several different conditions can initially present with a depressive episode. So it is important to obtain the relevant history to distinguish between these. The differential diagnosis for a patient presenting with a depressive disorder is vast and includes major depressive disorder, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, persistent depressive disorder, substance or medication-induced depressive disorder, and adjustment disorder with depressed mood. So let's pause and talk about a clinical pearl that's applicable for step one, two, or three. The major depressive disorder is a clinical diagnosis based on nine symptoms outlined in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the fifth edition. This is also referred to the DSM-5. In order to meet criteria for major depressive disorder, the patients must meet five out of nine of the following symptoms during a two-week time period. These symptoms must be different from previous functioning, exist for most of the day nearly every day, And one symptom must be either depressed mood or a loss of interest or pleasure. So let's go through these one by one and describe all the symptoms of major depressive disorder. So as mentioned, the first symptom is often depressed mood. And often or in adolescents and children, depressed mood isn't necessarily being sad. It can present as an irritable mood. This is also common in older adults as well. The second symptom is changes in sleep. This can be terminal insomnia, where the patient wakes up two to three hours before their normal wake-up time, or hypersomnia, or is sleeping too much. The third symptom is loss of interest and pleasure in almost all activities. Another term for this is called anhedonia. The fourth symptom is feelings of guilt or worthlessness. Some patients also report feelings of hopelessness as well. The fifth symptom is loss of energy. Patients might complain of fatigue. The sixth symptom has to do with concentration or the inability to concentrate or focus. The seventh symptom is changes in appetite. This can be an increase or a decrease in appetite correlated with weight gain or loss. The eighth symptom is psychomotor retardation or agitation. And this is where a patient tells you they feel like they're thinking or moving more slowly than they normally would be. In extreme cases, you as a clinician might also notice that they are moving or thinking very slowly. But in many cases, this is more of a subjective feeling, and you may not always be able to tell the difference as a clinician. And the last symptom is suicidal ideation, a suicide attempt, or recurrent thoughts of death. Some important historical questions to ask patients presenting with a major depressive episode include questions about a history of substance use, a history of hypomanic or manic episodes, the duration of the current episode, the recent occurrence of a profound life-altering event, and a thorough medical history. It is important to distinguish between a major depressive disorder and other diagnoses due to sometimes vastly different treatment options for each. With roughly 350 million people around the globe affected by depressive disorders, these disorders are collectively one of the top three causes of morbidity worldwide. Lifetime prevalence for depression has been estimated anywhere from 10 to 25 percent, and approximately 2 to 9 percent of these patients will die by suicide. With such high prevalence and potential for mortality, it is important to identify and appropriately treat depression. What medical conditions are associated with depressive symptoms? There are several medical conditions that have been shown to have a high incidence of depressive symptoms. The most common are Parkinson's disease, Huntington disease, cardiovascular accidents or CVAs, traumatic brain injuries, and neuroendocrine disorders such as Cushing's disease and hypothyroidism. Parkinson disease studies have shown a prevalence as high as 22.5% 36.6% and 24.8% of dysthymia, minor depression, and major depression, respectively. In many instances, mood symptoms appear years before motor symptoms in Parkinson's disease, and untreated depression can negatively affect the course of the disease. Although it might be hard to distinguish Parkinson's disease from major depressive disorder when mood symptoms appear first, the development of rigidity, Bradykinesia, tremor, and postural instability can assist in the differentiation. Huntington disease is an autosomal dominant disease that is due to a trinucleotide CAG expansion on chromosome 4 in the gene that encodes the Huntington protein. This disorder is characterized by movement abnormalities such as bradykinesia, dystonia, rigidity, and chorea. Psychiatric manifestations are common as well for this disorder and can include irritability, anxiety, psychosis, and depressed mood. And it's not uncommon for these psychiatric symptoms to precede motor symptoms by more than a decade. This disease should be considered in patients with a family history of the disease and genetic testing should be offered. A CVA is another common medical event associated with depression, with the prevalence of any depressive disorder after a CVA as high as 33.5% of patients. Although neurologic examination can help elicit new neurologic sequelae of a stroke, but neuroimaging such as head computed tomography or CT and magnetic resonance imaging or MRI commonly are used to diagnose the extent of neurologic injury. Cushing's disease and hypothyroidism have been associated with depressive symptoms as well. If Cushing's disease is suspected, a 24-hour free cortisone test followed by a high-dose dexamethasone suppression test, and an MRI of the cellar region can be performed. To evaluate hypothyroidism, the following can be tested. Thyroid-stimulating hormone, or TSH, free T3, and T4. It is important to identify and treat comorbid depression in individuals with these comorbid medical conditions because untreated depression can worsen clinical course of these diseases and result in a worse quality of life. So let's get back to our case. Upon further review, the patient denies any history of substance use, any history of manic or hypomanic symptoms, or any identifiable recent life stressors. Her laboratory results reveal no abnormalities in thyroid stimulating hormone levels, comprehensive metabolic panel, or complete blood count. Her urine drug screen is negative. Vital signs show blood pressure is 102 over 70. Millimeters of mercury, respiration rate is 15 per minute, heart rate is 72 beats per minute, and temperature is 37.1 degrees Celsius. What are some other considerations in a case like this? Well, women are statistically more likely to attempt suicide, whereas males are more often likely to die of a suicide attempt. In the past decade in the United States, the male to female suicide death ratio was 3.7 to 1 making suicide the seventh leading cause of death for men and the 15th leading cause of death for women. Here's a clinical pearl for step three. In the month leading up to their death, 50% of those who completed suicide attempts saw a physician and 24% saw a mental health care provider. This suggests that a more comprehensive screening method from both general practitioners and mental health providers can help lower suicide rates. So based on this patient's presenting symptom burden, and the lack of other criteria necessary for other diagnoses, she's diagnosed with major depressive disorder without psychotic features. Due to her suicidal ideation with a plan, she's admitted to the Adolescent Behavioral Health Unit for further evaluation and stabilization. What are the treatment options for patients with a major depressive disorder? Well, there are several. One treatment option are medications. The first-line medications for major depressive disorder are typically selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs. And this is due to their effectiveness and relatively lower side effect uh, profile. Other appropriate alternatives to SSRIs include serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors or SNRIs, tricyclic antidepressants, also called TCAs, and atypical antidepressants such as bupropion, mirtazapine, and trazodone. All of these have been shown to have comparable efficacy and more importance is placed on follow-up and medication adjustment than the initial medication choice. Another option for major depressive disorder is therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy or, or CBT and interpersonal psychotherapy are both considered appropriate and effective treatments for major depressive disorder. Well, what about combined medication and therapy? Well, the combination of psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy has been shown to be more efficacious than either treatment modality alone. In isolation, psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy appear to be similar in effect, although each has distinct advantages. Pharmacotherapy is generally more widely available and affordable, but in terms of follow-up after cessation of treatment, the effects of psychotherapy tend to be longer lasting. And finally, another treatment to consider is electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. Indications for ECT include refractory depression, mania, psychosis, psychotic depression, severe suicidality, and catatonia. ECT is most often delivered two to three times a week with the goal of six to 12 treatments in total. Although this treatment is very safe and effective, side effects can include anterograde amnesia, adverse reactions to anesthesia, arrhythmias, headaches, and confusion. Well, let's pause and let's go over a clinical pearl that's applicable for step two and step three. On rare but potentially fatal complication of serotonin reuptake inhibitors and other serotonergic medications is serotonin syndrome. The most widely accepted criteria for diagnosing serotonin syndrome is the Hunter serotonin toxicity criteria. To meet the criteria, the patient has to have been exposed to a serotonergic medication in the past five weeks. And one of the following conditions must be met. One is spontaneous clonus. Two is inducible clonus and agitation. Three is inducible clonus and diaphoresis. Four, ocular clonus and agitation. Five, ocular clonus and diaphoresis. Six, tremor and hyperreflexia. Seven, muscle rigidity and temperature greater than 38 degrees Celsius and ocular clonus. Or 8. Muscle rigidity and a temperature above 38 degrees Celsius and inducible clonus. The treatment for serotonin syndrome is supportive and includes cessation of the bending medication, fluid resuscitation, and benzodiazepines for agitation. In more severe cases, sedation, paralysis, and intubation might be indicated. What are the ethical considerations for involuntary hospitalization? One of the most important ethical considerations in a patient who presents with major depressive disorder arises when they express suicidality and present a danger to themselves. Although many patients seeking treatment may be agreeable to hospitalization, a percentage of this patient population will be resistant to this treatment option. When this happens, two of the guiding principles of medicine come into conflict, patient autonomy and non-maleficence. In this clinical scenario, which is all too often an actual scenario that clinicians face, the patients in question may lack decision-making capacity. Capacity evaluation includes an evaluation of the patient's understanding of their illness, the consequences of refusing treatment, and the reliability in decision-making. An important distinction to be made is that capacity must be evaluated in relation to a decision. So patients that may have the capacity to make decisions in one domain may lack it in another, based on the understanding of each illness or situation. In the situation where a physician determines a patient lacks capacity to refuse psychiatric hospitalization, the physician can balance non-maleficence with autonomy by hospitalizing the patients, while committing to a constant reevaluation of the patient's decision-making capacity, which is autonomy. Other steps that can be taken to minimize patient trauma and humiliation of involuntary hospitalization include limiting coercive tactics, encouraging cooperative measures, and allowing patients to make decisions within the limitations of their illness. So let's finish up and see what happens at the end of this case. The patient remained on the Adolescent Behavioral Health Unit for four days while she participated in group therapy, a family meeting, and daily individual meetings with the treatment team. She was started on 10 milligrams of fluoxetine daily. By the time of discharge, the patient denied suicidal ideation and felt she would be safe at home. The patient was provided appointments to see both a psychiatrist and a therapist for follow-up after discharge. At her follow-up appointment, she continued to deny suicidal ideation and reported an improvement in her depressive symptoms. And finally, let's go over some beyond the pearls. Double depression is defined as a major depressive episode in a patient with comorbid persistent depressive disorder. This condition has a poorer prognosis than major depressive disorder alone. Research on the gut-microbiome-brain axis is ongoing and suggests there could be a connection to the development of diseases such as mood disorders. A 12-month prevalence of major depressive disorder is three times higher in the 18 to 29-year-old age range than individuals 60 years or older. Antidepressants all have a controversial black box warning about the possibility of increased suicidal thinking, particularly in youth and young adults. The risk of untreated depression far outweighs the risk of suicidal thoughts, but the warning still must be discussed with patients. And finally, transcranial magnetic stimulation, also called TMS, vagus nerve stimulation, or VNS, ketamine, and esketamine are also being used to treat depression, particularly in people with treatment-resistant depression. So that ends our discussion on major depressive disorder. I hope you enjoyed it. And thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from inside the boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.